So let's begin now at the end. That's how I want us to process out this story of Scripture. At the end of it, we said it's Christ. He's the fulfillment of it. He's the consummation of it. So if we're going to understand this story of Scripture, we're going to have to start there, as I said, knowing Him and knowing Him through the light of the Gospels. So let's go back to our little, our little tree, our little set of vines that we've got here. And I, I intentionally had it go from winter to fall to spring. I grew up on a vineyard, so vineyards speak to me. And the, the first vineyard is obviously the fall. It's, as we said, it's Adam and the problem that happened there. Abraham and what God begins to reveal about himself that begins to, for the first time, put the real God into human history in a way that we can read about. And then Moses does more with that. There's things we learn. There's also a road God takes them down that's a temporary road. Some of us have made it permanent. David begins to show us something different. Isaiah, something different. And there's lots of other things we're going to fill in there when we get toward the the third section of, of what we're doing here. But for right now, what I want to focus on is this part of the story. And primarily that biggest bush in the middle, the one who fulfilled everything from the old and launched a new day that the early church began to experience together. And that this becomes the foundation by which we get to understand the story. That's why I said, let's start. Two or three years in the Gospels, people go, you're kidding. No, read them 14, 15 times. Just keep reading through them. Just get comfortable not only with what Jesus is saying, but what he's doing, how he's treating people. Get to know that Jesus, not just in the story you're reading, but get to know that Jesus in your own heart. As you're you're reading those stories, say, Jesus, I want to see you this way. When I'm feeling condemned about the failure in my life and you're reading the story about the woman who was caught in adultery, you're reading about greedy old Zacchaeus and him getting a lunch appointment with Jesus. You can sit back and say, Jesus, this this is the you I want to know. How do you right now make yourself known to me that alleviates this condemnation that I'm feeling that brings me out of the places I've got stuck and the things I'm doing wrong. So this is, we're going to talk about this section and then toward, then we're going to go back and fill in this whole other timeline and what it is, all these books of the Old Testament and how they impact that. But for now, let's start here. Synoptic Gospels in John. The Synoptic Gospels is a term used for the first three Gospels. Basically remember that because of their similarities. There's a lot of similarities between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then the fourth gospel, John, if you've read it much, you'll know John's a very different gospel. John's a whole different direction than the rest of the Mark. Here's how that comes out. Mark itself has 93% of the book of John is similar to things that are somewhere else in the other gospels. 93% of it. And that's caused some scholars to think, well, you know, maybe Mark wrote first and everybody stole Mark's stuff and read his stuff. Well, I, we don't know if that's true. Mark told the first account, evidently. He told it rapidly. He told it quickly. And as we'll see in a little bit, Mark, uh, Mark wasn't one of the 12 disciples. Mark was uh, Peter's buddy. And so basically we're getting in Mark is Peter's story that he, Mark had heard a million times from Peter. These are the things they wanted to tell about the life of Jesus. So Mark, 93% is similar. You're going to find similar stories in, in the other Gospels. 7% is unique. It's, just, it's only in John. Matthew's 54% similarities to other things. And he's got 42% that's unique to Matthew. So 40% of Matthew, you're not going to read anywhere else. You're going to find those stories of Jesus and things he said and did in Matthew. Luke, so even though you're reading through them, going, boy, these books sound like the same thing over and over again. In some ways they are, but not quite. And then you get to Luke, and he's 41% of what's in his Gospels. You're going to find in Matthew, Mark, or John. But then you're going to have 59% that is unique to him. He's taken other stuff. And Luke's, Luke's the Gospel that was most researched. 
Uh, he even says that at the beginning, and we'll talk about that more. He really wanted this to be a definitive account as best he could arrange things chronologically from the stories he got from the other people who were there. Again, Luke wasn't one of those 12 disciples either. And then you've got John, who's really the opposite of Mark. John's 8% similarities elsewhere, and 92% of his stuff doesn't appear. The wedding feast at Canaan, the whole, most of the upper room discourse outside of Peter's denial uh, is all unique to John and, and a great place to read and a great place to see it. If you want some other background on these stories, and I, I love, and I'll, I'll do this with you not only through the gospel. If you want a good interpretation of the gospels, there's two places to look, Acts 3 and Acts 10. Acts 3 is Peter, excuse me, Peter's story at Pentecost. He's telling people who had not a clue who Jesus was, the highlights of the life of Jesus. That's the summary statement of the life of Jesus. And then he does it again in Acts 10 at the house of Cornelius. Now, when we get to the Old Testament, I'm going to show you how the New Testament, even how the Old, interprets itself. Because I think in those, you get really what's at the heart of this. Who was Jesus and what did he come to do? And that's the heart of the gospel. It's not, let's get down to the minutia of what does it mean to forgive and what about divorce and remarriage and parsing all these words. No, those things aren't unimportant, but they are not the most important things. Most important things is that God came among us in the form of his son. And he loved us in ways we never would have believed. And he did incredible things by the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't do it out of his Godheadness. He had laid down that. He came in his humanity, fully human, like us. And yet the miracles he did and the things he saw and the things he said came out of his own engagement with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 10.38, everything he did, he did empowered by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is not only this incredible representation of the Father to us, He's also the model for what redeemed humanity can look like in the world. But I want to live the way he lives. I want to think the way he thinks. I'm a long ways from that. That's not, I'm going to do that tomorrow. I'm just going to live like Jesus lives. Well, I wish I were that bright. I'm not that bright. I know, you know, a little bit about Jesus. And that little bit I know, I try to live inside that. But even then, I don't do that well all the time. But as my knowledge of his grow, him grows and my security in his love grows, I find myself actually treating people like Jesus treated people in the world. And that becomes so Acts 3 and Acts 10, great place to start before you even read the Gospels. Just see what Peter's summary statement was. Two summary statements in both those places. And then we get this New Testament story. And we get now the synoptics and how it breaks down in these four. So you want to spend some time in these. And like I said, Mark's a great place to start. Uh, and what we have in, in the Gospels, let me go on to this next thing. The synoptics are mostly chronological accounts. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they mostly try to stay chronological. Their chronological doesn't always agree. Again, so we're getting reflections by people who are remembering back 30 years later who shared this story probably hundreds if not thousands of times. And you know as a story gets shared over time, your memory gets a little more faulty and things get... So there's going to be things in there that just, hey, that doesn't exactly line up. And people, ah, see, the Bible's a fraud. The Bible's not a fraud to me. If we brought three witnesses from this night together, uh, together two years from now, what did Wayne talk about and what did he do and say? It would probably be very different things that would be said and not any of them untrue. Just the fact that the individual little isolated facts, what that says to us is God didn't dictate this. Men wrote this out of the inspiration of the Spirit. And what God preserved in that was not that everything would line up exactly right, but that the, the main story, the important story, the truths we needed to know, those would line up. But getting three different, view, four different views of the same elephant is going to be very, very helpful to figure out what we're looking at here. 
And John, his not chronological at all. He just, he breaks it up into signs and teachings that demonstrate exactly what he said he wanted to do to teach us that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God, so we could put our trust in him. The synoptics talk about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. This is one of the great contrasts I think you'll find in scripture. Find Christians today. We're always talking about church. Church this, church that, institutional church, alternative forms of church, 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 church. Jesus used the term twice, both in Matthew is where it's recorded. Matthew 16, Matthew 18. Jesus was not preoccupied. Church, got to get the church started. Got to get you guys meet. Got to meet every week. Got to do, got to do, got to do. Jesus didn't talk about the church at all. Two places. And basically he says, I will build my church. So basically he said, keep your mitts off of it, which we haven't done for 2,000 years. But I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against that church. He's talking about kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. And pretty much if you read the, through the synoptics, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're going to find those terms are pretty interchangeable. Kingdom of God is not the local present one and the kingdom of heaven is the future one. They're both talking about the effective domain of God's reign. Where God gets to have his way has come into the world. And they look at it that way and they invite us into a kingdom and when Paul and Barnabas go out in Acts, they're not going out to plant churches, as we're going to see when we get to Acts. They're going out to spread the kingdom. They're inviting people into the kingdom. The church was the byproduct of that engagement. It wasn't the goal. They weren't church planters. You don't even find the word in Scripture. We use it all the time today. Got to plant churches. Paul never planted a church. Paul went and spread the gospel, taught people to live the life of Jesus, and people who live the life of Jesus become the church together. The church is the byproduct of people who live loved. And if we don't learn to live loved and we don't learn to love God in the way he loves us, then in fact, church becomes our replacement for knowing God. And then it becomes idolatrous and then we have problems with it. So it's two things we use sometimes. Some people use the scriptures to replace Jesus' work in our lives. And some people replace the church with that. I don't know God. It's too complicated for me. I hope Wayne knows him well enough. So I just go hang out where Wayne hangs out. Then I'm going to know what to do. And then by knowing Wayne, I can live vicariously with God. No, you can't. And I wouldn't even let you try. If you live near me, no, you cannot live off of me. If you don't know the God I know, I want to help you know him. If you want to spend time with me for that, great. I will help you know the God I know. But I'm not going to help you live this life without him. I think it's purely impossible to live as a believer in this world without the resurrected Christ being an important part of that engagement. That's what they meant by kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. John doesn't use it. He uses kingdom two or three times. It almost It's the whole focus of the ministry in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, the word replaces it as life and eternal life. But he's talking about the same reality. He's using a different terminology to describe the same elephant in the room. There's this eternal life that's not when we die. Eternal life is the quality of life that God has preserved unstained by sin by making sin finite. By the soul that sin shall die. Not the first curse, the first act of redemption, which we'll talk more about when we get to the Old Testament. Because the soul that sins shall die gives God a preservation of eternity. Eternity is unstained by our sin. It is the safe harbor to which God wants to save us, to which God wants to draw us in. And it doesn't start when you die. It starts, to, it starts the day you come to know him. There's an eternal quality of life that John talks about that he wants to begin to take over our lives, to dwell in us, to teach us how to live in, and that we sometimes find it difficult to live in because we get lost. The structure, all of them start, John less so, but the other three, birth, announcement, baptism, temptations. That's how they start. That's how Matthew, Mark, Luke get through that story. There's little of the birth in Mark. He gets right onto the ministry. But notice, 
90% of the life of Jesus is not even talked about much in the Gospels. The 90% we talk about is the three years he lived in ministry. 90% of his life on this earth is basically unrecorded. There's the 12-year-old moment in the temple. There's Jesus growing in wisdom. Jesus spent 90% of his life doing what we do every day, the mundane things of life, learning to be a child, a son, a carpenter, you know, and living life that way, not doing miracles, not doing anything. And yet when he gets baptized, God says about him, this is the son in whom I'm well pleased. And he's not done one of the things that we often count as quote-unquote ministry. He's just been loving people. Then it gets into his ministry, and you get to read about you know, his major sermons. There's Sermon on the Mount's a biggie. In fact, I think the way scriptures phrase this is part of the story again. I love this. If you just take Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you're going to read them in order, you get past the birth narrative and the baptism, the temptations in Matthew, and Matthew immediately jumps in then to three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that are the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is this is how God wants you to live. And it's ridiculous. You read the Sermon on the Mount, it's, you, thought, you thought the Pharisees had it bad. You know, they just think, you know, committing adultery is a problem. I'm telling you, lusting in your heart is the real problem. And he just takes this legalistic world they're in, and in one sense, he blows it up. and like, Oh, you think it's bad to murder? If you hate somebody, you've already murdered him. And you're just going, oh, Jesus, don't do this. Now it's just, but he's telling us the ideal, this is the ideal life of God. It's not just to live free externally. It's to live free internally. That's what he's saying. It's not expanding the sin so you can be more guilty. It's saying the, the fix for murder is the hate in the heart. The fix for adultery is the lust in the heart. I'm going in here to fix stuff. Unless your righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees. So he's saying stuff that I'm sure people are going, oh my gosh, we're dead. <laughs> he describes the ideal life in God. That's how Matthew 5 through 7 starts. And then the rest of Matthew, Mark, and Luke is Jesus living that way. He lives that ideal life. He lives that righteousness. He lives, but he's not doing it by ascribing to a code. He's living it by, I only do the things I see the Father doing. I only say the things I hear the Father saying. So I'm living inside a relationship, and because I love my Father and my Father loves me, we're living out of that love. That love is keeping law. It's not Jesus waking up and saying, okay, what do I have to do today to keep the law? He's not. He's following his father every day through the tough stuff, through the fun stuff. He's following his father. And then we get just how the four Gospels are arranged. John 14, 15, so you can put the 13 in there too. That's the early part of the upper room, washing the disciples' feet, some of that. But then 14, 15, and 16, there, there's these two bookends. Sermon on the Mount, this is the ideal life. This is what God wants you to live. And then John 14, 15, 16, this is the only way you can live it. By knowing me, in that day you will know I'm in the Father. And you are in me, and I'm in you. It's the only way you can live it. You can't live it by, oh, I'm going to be more righteous than the Pharisees, and I'm going to follow the law. No, Jesus fulfills all of that. Fulfills the Matthew 5-7 through 7 stuff. Still read it. It's great stuff to know. This is what God blesses. The Beatitudes, great stuff. You get down to, man, suffering in our lives, and that hey, don't worry about that, because that's the way they treat everybody God sends. They always want to whack off heads, kill people, beat people, exclude you, lie about you. Don't be neurotic when it happens. That's just the way it works. It's always worked that way. And then into righteousness and not building your house on the sand and God taking care of you and Matthew 6 and seek first the kingdom of God. He's describing this ideal life. And then he says, the only way you can live that is inside a relationship. Apart from me, you can do most everything. No, John 15, apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing. So now the story begins to change. 
The old covenant was the more righteous I can be, the more of God I can have. The new covenant is, no, no, the more of relationship I'll have, the more righteous he'll make me to be. If apart from me you can do nothing, then I'm freed from the whole obligation to try and do anything in my own strength to serve Jesus, to make him proud of me, to earn his affection, to do all that. He has already satisfied everything the Father would ever want from me. I now get to enter into a love relationship with him, not just Jesus, but now the Father too, and and the Holy Spirit, the community that they've shared together for all time, they're inviting us to be in that community. Not just in John 14, 20, in that day you will know that I'm in the Father and you are in me. Not near us, not with us, in us. That mutual interpenetration of life. That's what God has known from all eternity. Father, Son, and Spirit have shared this community of love and life and trust and glory sharing and life sharing and trust. I mean, just read the high priestly prayer in John 17. And you've got so much wonderful stuff going on between Father and Son. You know the Holy Spirit's in that stuff too. But Jesus is talking about His Father in that whole scenario. And now He says, in that day, you're going to get it. I don't know what day He was talking about exactly. It might have been Pentecost. In that day, you'll get it. I'm in the Father. You are in me. I am in you. Now we become part of that community. And I get to grow, not in the knowledge of God, facts, and systematic theology, I get to grow in the knowing of God as well as the person who engages my life. And that's what we'll find in the course of this gospel is that the living out of it comes out of that John 14, 15, 16 relationship thing. So if you're going to spend any time trying to sort out what it is to live loved, how it is to engage God, then you know, go spend three years in John 14, 15. So you got six years of the Bible right there. Just spend three years, John 14, 15, 16. Keep reading that till it becomes real in your heart and ask him to make it real in your heart. And then the whole Gospels, and just watch how Jesus lived that way. It's incredible. And you come out of it going, man, if he could do this, then he can do this in me. And I want to find my way into that kind of relationship. Then the sermon, and then, of course, the passion and the resurrection, the key part of the story, the whole reason he came. And part of that, you don't get a lot of teaching of that in the Gospels. In the Gospels, it's pretty much an event. Jesus goes through this event. It doesn't tell us exactly all that's going on spiritually between the Father and the Son at the cross. They're just watching him die. They're describing the way he died, the mockery of the people around him, the disillusionment of his own followers, that the one they thought had the hope of the kingdom is now gone from their midst, and then the complete shock of the resurrection, even though Jesus told them six or seven times, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be delivered to the elders, I'm going to be crucified, and on the third day I'm going to rise, and on the third day no one shows up, no one even remembered that he said it. It had been, they were already arguing with him when he got to crucified that no one ever heard resurrection, even though they remembered it enough to record it later, saying, well, yeah, he did mention it a few times. As a matter of fact, we just seem to have forgotten it. And so on the only Easter sunrise service that ever mattered, no one was there. <laughs> couple of angels rolled a stone. I mean, it'd been a great, take your lawn chair, go on down. You know, this is the third day, boys. We had to go down here and see what's going on. And not one of them thought to do it. The only people that were there were there to anoint the body for burial because it was buried so fast they didn't get a chance to do it. And all that changes because they didn't know. 